scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 25, verse 31 to 43. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. This be the word of God. I've been informed this morning that, uh, and I feel I feel bad about this. I want that the hearing loop is not working this morning. It's why the there's no interference. We've been you, know, you have these finite problems in in your in your life or your home or something where you think this should be fixable. Um, and so it's uh, provided. It's it's proven to be um, one of those finicky problems. So I will try to speak uh, clearly for those who um, who are battling hearing difficulty already. And thank you for your patience with us. Every day, you think about the struggles that you have in your life. We talked about this last week. What struggles are they? You tend to think of things of faith or family or vocation or finance or getting your socks on or something like that. Having enough, your security, your family. In our Christian faith, we're told what our daily challenge is to be. I use the word struggle, but I'm not comfortable with it because it makes it sound too negative. It's really our call. What's our fundamental call? It's not for financial security, though that's a lot of what, you know, I was reading some articles on parenting over the last few days, and uh, one of them was mentioning that, that, I can't remember exactly the language it used, but kids aren't so much raised anymore as directed. Everything is about directing your child to success. And, and that's um, mostly, I guess, in, in the financial realm. And in, in Christian faith, that is not the, the priority or the fundamental call. That is often the call of this world. It's the default call. But the call, and so we could use the word struggle, but I want to think of it in a positive way, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the call. That's the struggle you're to live with each day. We most often think that our struggles are how to live. 
So what will we have? What kind of comfort or vacation or, you know, our, our, our life compared to other lives? We think our struggles are how to live, but in truth, in Christian faith, and this again is not a morbid thing or a negative thing, our struggles and our call is always how to die to self. That's the Christian call. This can be something as minor as having a conversation with someone and you are not able or you don't think you're able to be fully present because you're thinking about yourself. You're called in that conversation to die to self. What might that mean? Or it might be something much bigger in terms of expectations you have in your life that you have to let go because of the care of another person or because the circumstances of your life. And you know, I know you know this, those of you who've been around long enough, that when you begin to accept that your fundamental call in Christian faith is actually how to die, not how to live, you begin to experience this tremendous thing, freedom. And the blessings of your life become richer because you don't have to hold them so tightly. In fact, you're able to experience the good things in, in a much more complete way than when you're struggling on how to live. This, these are the essential practices of our Christian faith. And uh, I've got them listed here. I'm mindful that actually we're going to skip the, I guess it's the fifth one, wake up. We looked at Jacob and, uh, and waking up in this a place that he had thought was God forsaken and he realized was the house of God. Pay attention. We looked at Moses and the burning bush. The willingness to turn aside from that of your everyday life to encounter God's presence in this world. We talked about getting lost, which had mostly to do with suffering. And today and last week, we're talking about be with the people that you're with, encountering others or this call. Love the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the focus for this morning, love your neighbor as yourself. Which, by the way, when, when, when uh, Jesus is confronted with the question, what does neighbor mean? He throws the question back, and basically the only way you could think that he's answering is you don't need to ask the question, who's my neighbor? If you're asking the question, who's my neighbor, you're probably, you're probably motivated by the, by the sense of who do I not have to love? And Jesus throws that question back and gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, which just makes the, the person who asked the question think, I don't know, I guess, and those who have ears to hear realize, I guess he means everybody. Uh, we were going to look at feel pain, but I think we'll skip that and go right next week to pronounce blessing. That you have, that you have uh, a privilege before you in your Christian faith that you get to pronounce blessing on people, uh, on your own experience, as an essential practice of the Christian faith. But today, encountering, encountering people, loving the people that you're with, the scene we're looking at is grandiose and epic and apocalyptic. When the Son of Man comes in glory, this is final judgment language. There's angels, there's a throne, and there's a gathering of all the nations. Nobody in history can gather all the nations together except in any religious tradition, the, those who are, in a sense, at the top. And in this case, it is Jesus Christ gathering the nations together or God gathering all of the nations, all of history together before the throne of Jesus Christ and we're, we're going to witness as the final judgment. But is, what is as interesting in this scene as what is not present, that's as interesting as what is present. Because though this is an epic and apocalyptic scene, 
it's very basic in how people are judged and separated. And there is judgment in this. I'm one of the first to say that the church has has erred in being very, very judgmental. But uh, that does not mean that, that Scripture does not have judgment in it. It does, very clearly. Jesus says to us, do not judge. But that in, in this scene, Jesus Christ himself, there is a separation. He judges people. But it's not quite what anybody had expected. The contrast is, is very present here. You have this scene, we're told, sheep and goats. That's the metaphor. Jesus takes the sheep and puts them on his right side and the goats on his left. And the judgment itself is very basic. The separation is according to apparently one question. The question is, how did these people see and treat other people in the world? Uh, you've been in places where this is stressed so much to the point that there's no faith in Jesus at all. There's no, well, I don't really care about Jesus. It's just about how you treat people. That's not what's being said here. What's being said here is, if you truly understand Jesus Christ, if you get the first part, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you'll get the second part. In other words, the basis of all love is the love of God. You can't do this in and of yourself. It's an important note. However, the judgment is over the actual people that I encountered in my actual life. How did I treat them? In this judgment, this is, there is no issue on which to stand. In other words, whether you're in social media arguments or political arguments, wherever they might be, there is no sense in this scene of you were on the right side of the issue. And so you're in. There's no issue mentioned here. There's no worldview to espouse. There's no favored group of which to be a part. In other words, you had a privileged part because you were part of this religious group or this political group or whatever it might be, and so you get into the VIP lounge and the rest go to the the lounge somewhere else. Not a lounge at all. Rather here it is, there was a hungry person that was fed. There was a thirsty person given drink. You welcomed a stranger. There was a naked person clothed and a prisoner visited. And this is is the line of judgment. But the way in which Jesus puts it, he puts the sheep on his right and he says, because, this this is extremely important language, it's challenging to us though. He doesn't say, you, you, you're in, in glory and in heaven because you took care of this other person. It works out a bit that way, but, but his language is, you saw me hungry and you fed me. You saw me thirsty and you gave me drink. You saw me a prisoner and you visited me. You saw me sick and you helped. Actually, it says you saw me sick and a prisoner and you visited me. And because of this, here's the, the positive side of the judgment, because of this, you enter great word here. It's better than heaven. The better word than heaven. Because of this, you enter glory. This means fullness of life. Now in his telling, when he says this, what's in the scene, you don't get those people who enter into glory saying, hip, hip, hooray, you know, and they've got the, we won the Super Bowl hats on already, and they're already prepared or whatever. All that stuff that happens five seconds after you're, de- you're given victory or you're declared the victor or you're in glory, 
um, there's no big celebration at, at first. Rather, what happens in, in Jesus' telling is the people who are told that they get to enter glory all do this. What is he talking about? When, when did we see you a prisoner? Isn't it curious that they have this in their minds? So when they were visiting prisoners, they didn't even think, this is my religious duty. They visited prisoners. They fed hungry people. And Jesus has to tell them, when you did that, unto the least of these, means the reviled ones, the forgotten ones, the rejected ones, the judged ones, those declared criminals, when you did it unto the least of these, and then in beautiful words, my brethren, you did it unto me. Enter glory. The essential Christian practice is be with the ones that you're with. You see the level to which Jesus brings this down. There's a very important theological word for this, and that's the word incarnation. We understand, of course, that, that God himself is made incarnate in Jesus Christ the Son. Right? The divine become human in the flesh. This is one of the beautiful paradoxes of Christian faith which things like the Trinity or things like the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus Christ, and if any of you can understand them, then it ceases to be faith. It's just your kind of, your cleverness. It's always assaulting to our sensibilities, the eternal things. But incarnation is that God has taken on flesh, that you, if you want to see God, the very fundamental Christian teaching, if you want to see God, there's only one place to look, and that's at Jesus Christ. You will see God's character in Jesus Christ. But Jesus is fully divine. But he's also fully human. This is the incarnation. God has taken on flesh. But here Jesus takes the incarnation a step further. This is a challenge to us. I understand that. But we've got to deal with the text. And he says, it's not just my flesh. But when you visited that prisoner, you visited me. Do with that what you will, but it's in the text. In fact, it's the line of judgment. The scene then is repeated for those who are judged as um, not, not meeting the mark, not making, uh, making the grade, so to speak. You have been weighed and you have been found wanting. Now, it's important for us to understand that this is something that Jesus says. For those who have a sense, they just want to say, well, everything's okay. and every, you know. There is in this scene a final judgment. You have been weighed and you have been found wanting. The curious thing is that when you put this together, and I'll mention it in a moment, Matthew chapter 7, the ones who thought they were acceptable turn out not to be acceptable. And the ones who, who thought, well, we didn't really know we were serving Jesus at all, they turn out to be the ones that are into glory. That's a challenge for people, and particularly a challenge for religious people. But there is, you have been weighed, you have been found wanting. So in bringing this down to the earthly level, what matters is how you live in terms of seeing others and caring for them. I am tremendously glad for the spiritual life. I I enjoy being alone. I enjoy being a mystic in the Christian faith. I love going for a bike ride and, and getting caught up with those birds that are flying by. I love the 
early mornings and quiet and just the, the prayerfulness that can come from nature. But in this scene, there is something so tremendously practical. How are you able to be with the people in your actual life? Don't take the spiritual life and put it into one day land. How you encounter God is how you treat the people around you right now and how you think about the people that are around you right now. So for us in this room, it's only this room. What categories do you have? We've got people of different ages, different backgrounds. If you as a young person think that you can, you've got the older people figured out, you know what makes them tick and kind of just the two-dimensional assessments that we do. Likewise, if you as an older person think you have young people figured out, do you understand that that's not, that's not anything, that's not what this text is, is mentioning, talking about. How do you encounter not your concepts of various categories, but an actual person? Because everybody in here is an actual person. And, of course, the thing that allows you to just make it two-dimensional is the distancing, never encountering them at all. And that's the people that are weighed and found wanting. Well, you were never in jail. You were never in... And, and basically the king, Jesus himself, says, you were unable to see the people in your actual world and in your actual life, and so you didn't see me. The Desert Fathers, and many of you know that I love the writings of the Desert Fathers because they're just crazy enough that you have to write some of it off. You have to go like, no, that's just nuts. But sometimes it's tremendous spiritual insight. And then as a listener, you go, and I don't think that I always necessarily get those, those evaluations correct. The Desert Fathers, who were tremendously committed in terms of the spiritual life and in terms of growth and faith, One of them said, if you see a monk by his own will climbing up into heaven, so that's the kind of life, the spiritual life separated from the everyday life. If you see a monk by his own will climbing up into heaven, take him by the foot and throw him to the ground. What he is doing is not good for him or for others as it turns out. These people understood that the life of faith is lived in relationship with one another. There's another story of two desert fathers. They're just identified as two elders, and they're living together. They're in like a, so they went out and lived in cells or caves or whatever. And in this case, two individuals are living in the same cell or close by to one another. And they had looked around in, in the world and in the city and in their community, even in, even in the kind of monastic area or, or that, uh, um, their small community, and they saw much arguing. And this is how the story is told. And so they said to one another, I guess that's what people do. They argue. So we should probably have an argument, the two of us. And one of, the, one of them looked at the other and said, well, what are we going to argue about? And so the other one said, well, there's a brick here. Why don't we argue about who's, who that belongs to? And so they said, okay, we're going to have an argument. They had to set it up. So the first one said, I'll say that the brick is mine. And then you get upset at me and say, no, the brick is yours. It belongs to me. And they said to one another, are you ready? The second said, okay, I'm ready. Okay, that brick is mine. No, it's not, it's mine, said the second. I beg your pardon, said the first, but it is my brick, 
No, it is not. It is mine. And here's the little quirk at the end of the story. Well, said the second man, if it's yours, then take it. (laughs) And the story ends, so they failed to get into an argument. (laughs) The point here is that these two individuals were so schooled and, and advanced in the spiritual life that they couldn't help but see the person in front of them even when they were determined not to. And quickly, I was supposed to be having an argument, but even in the midst of a made-up argument, well, sure, you can have it. They couldn't prevent this habit of seeing the person as more important than the brick. But we, oh, we have a lot to learn. I mean, it's nice to laugh at that trite little story, but if you could live that way, you'd be free. The acts of mercy mentioned in this text are simple like that. As John Chrysostom points out, 4th century bishop, it is not I was sick and you healed me. This is not for spiritual superstars. This is for everybody. And if church and religion have set up in your mind that one day you can live the spiritual life, everybody is able to do the acts mentioned in this text. There's a parallel to this text in the seventh chapter of the same book. Jesus says, not everyone, another scene of judgment, and says, not everyone who says to me, many of you know it, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Some who prophesied in my name and drove out demons even. And I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. Now, it is something at least, and I don't have to unpack it all, and I'm not trying to judge one gift towards another, but it is something at least that the acts of basic mercy are the ones that are applauded as these are the things that show that you can enter glory, and the acts of spiritual superstardom are the ones that say you were able to perform all those acts, but you didn't know me. Just interesting note for us. Our faith is not calling us to be spectacular. Though that may come, and I'm not arguing for accepting an anemic, powerless Christian faith. That may come by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it is not the call of our lives. The call of our lives is to love God and love others. It is not I was sick and you healed me. It is not I was a prisoner and you set me free. Right? It is not, now I'm preaching to myself, it is not I came to church and you preached to me. And oh, it was a good sermon. It's a very important if challenging truth here. The judgment, and this is probably the most challenging thing in the text, for our um, evangelical sensibilities, you know, our sense of what it means to accept Christ. And again, I'm only speaking what's in this text. But the judgment here is not over what you believe even. Do you understand that? It is not even here over, I received Jesus Christ into my heart. Well, you received Jesus into your heart, so you're in, and you didn't, so you're out. In this scene, the judgment is over whether you were able to receive the presence of Jesus Christ in another person, sometimes even unaware. That is the text. I'm not saying the other doesn't matter. I think it matters tremendously. Your belief and your faith. But in this text, 
Jesus is clear. As one rabbi put it, the supreme religious challenge is to see God's image in one who is not in our image. The supreme religious challenge is to see God's image in one who is not in our image. So what prevents us from being able to love like this? I I think this is the only slide I have, and you can barely see the bottom one, so I'll just tell you what it says if you can't see it. What prevents us from doing these things, from being able to love as this text mentions? Well, I just it's, it's such an important point, the first one, that I'm just going to say it and leave it. The first thing that prevents us from loving as we should is our tremendous capacity to be self-centered. Uh, this, is the, this is the main impediment to any spiritual growth, self-centeredness. Just thinking about myself and, you know, thinking about what views I have that are challenged and having to kind of battle this or whatever it might be. The supreme, uh, uh, the, the fundamental challenge to, a, to spiritual growth is self-absorption, self-centeredness. So take that as a given. I'm going to mention two uh, smaller things that prevent us from being able to love in this way. The first is, and I think it's particularly contemporary, and I don't mean to just uh, hack on technology or uh, it's, they're re- it's really more of an illustration. It's more illustrative uh, what technology does today. But the first thing that prevents us from being able to love in this way is thinking that things are happening somewhere else as compared to here right now. So the call to love one another, the call to fulfill the religious obligation in your life, the ultimate call in your life, is live right now, right here in this room. We live in a world now where we're told that things are happening somewhere else. In fact, some of you have gone for dinners in in places with friends, and everybody at the table is actually in some other place rather than there. This is a tremendous challenge to the spiritual life and and to the call of loving the people that you're with. And, of course, I got that song in my head. What is it? Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young or something. If you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. Amen. You can love the person in front of you right now. But if you are struggling to be present in this moment, then you will always struggle with this. Always looking past the person you're with to something else. So be here, wherever you happen to be. I think there's an aspect to which celebrity and fame as, as a virtue also diminishes the ability to be where you are because you tend to think that your life, your real life will exist next. Like when you get to that next thing, whatever that might be. Please hear me, everybody here. Your real life is this moment right now. And if you can understand that, you can live. But if you think, well, it's when I get this next thing, you will always struggle. Always struggle with the ability to be fully alive. I'm not saying you don't have goals and and set a course for your life. I'm just saying when you begin to understand that you live in the here and now, you begin to see what that freedom is. And by the way, you begin to actually see that there's a person in front of you, a real live person worthy of love, Secondly, that which prevents us from being present as we should is our society, which is ordered by, and it's a good word, and you can go home saying, uh, 
yeah, it sounds like a university word, uh, is a culture of meritocracy. Meritocracy. Just, it, it's like democracy, but with merit at the beginning. Meritocracy. What meritocracy is, let me tell you what it isn't. Uh, some of you watch Downton Abbey, right? <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> um, there's no meritocracy in Downton Abbey. You're born into the upstairs world or the downstairs world, and that's it. And you get to be Lady Grantham because you were born into the right, you know, or the daughter or whatever it is because you were... And the show actually skillfully plays with that idea. That's how the world in many places and for many centuries was ordered. We don't live as much or much at all in that world anymore. We've replaced it with a system that we've given this name meritocracy It's not actually true, but what we think is that the people who rise to the top deserve to be at the top. We make those assumptions. And so, you know, we we deify people like Steve Jobs because he achieved, right? He's the closest thing to, to a god in our culture, in this world. The the downfall of thinking like this, well that I could just you can see the downfall by me describing that. But the real downfall is to think that not only do the people who rise to the top deserve to be at the top, but therefore the people who are on the bottom deserve to be on the bottom. This is the curse of meritocracy. It did replace, it was good that it replaced a system that was just crazy. But if you believe in any way, shape, or form in this manner then you will be unable to be fully present to the people that you're with because you will wish that you were with these people and you will say, well, it doesn't really mean much that I'm with these people and you'll fail to love. The word for this is snobbery. Alain de Botan uh, described, defines snobbery well. This is what snobbery means. Snobbery means you relate to people according to what they deserve, their talent and their skill. It means that, what's a snob? A snob is someone who takes a small part of you and uses that to come to a complete vision of who you are. Full stop. So whether you would say, well, I don't really believe in meritocracy, but I bet you there's a bit of snob in you. You take just a small part of a person and you use that to come to a complete vision of who that person is. That way of thinking will prevent you from fully loving people. So I can confess to you, snobbery in my own life, there's a lot of it. It happens in grocery stores. Lately, uh, I've been going to grocery stores early in the morning because we're too tired to go at night. and We need milk or we need whatever. We can't go at night. Are you going to go? No, I'm not going. I'm not going. Fine. But I like getting up early in the morning, and one of my good fatherly duties, school's coming to an end now, but we don't have food for lunches or whatever, and I'll go at 6.30 or 7 in the morning, I'll go down to Save On Foods, and it's just like, it's, it's beautiful. Nobody's there. You can smell the baking, the buns are fresh. You can walk briskly, and I'm walking briskly in the store, it's quick. And I'm there one morning a couple of weeks ago, getting things done. Nobody's in the store virtually. I mean, a few people. And I'm walking just in that, in that area 
in between the, the checkout place and where the aisles start, you know, that, which is a major thoroughfare a lot of the time. And it's bad enough when you turn the corner and someone's there and they're in my way. And, but in the morning, nobody's there. You could just, just go like this. And I'm walking there one of these occasions where I'm shopping early in the morning, and there's a woman with a shopping cart. Who has a shopping cart at 6.30 in the morning? But anyway. And she, and I'm walking this way, and she, I guess, doesn't see me or whatever. And she comes, and she stops her cart just like this. And you know what it made me do? It was a terrible inconvenience to me. It made me slow the briskness of my walk <laughs> by maybe almost a full second. And so then she probably picked up my disdain, and I don't, I don't even think she noticed me. But anyway, moved her card, and I walked by, and as I went into the aisle, I went, what is wrong with her? It's a small, small thing, but it's, it's a lesson. I took up a spiritual practice. This is a bit of a confession. And I can't tell you the full reality of it. I have to censor it a little bit. But I took up a spiritual practice when I was driving home the other day. I dropped Aiden off at Kayla's house, his girlfriend's house. And I was driving home just from the Kirkstone area to Grand Boulevard here. And I was thinking about this sermon. This is a couple weeks ago. So I thought, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be that guy who hates everything and everybody no matter what. And so I was driving around, and I looked, and I saw, you know, a pedestrian. I was like, stupid pedestrian, stupid dog, stupid driver, and then the cyclist. Stupid cyclist. I hate cyclists. But I was having fun with it, and I thought, what would it be like to be that guy? Are they around? But this is the lesson. Trust me. And I wouldn't even tell you this story if I didn't feel this in my heart, that I would look at myself and think, Todd, how do you do that to people? Because you do that to You can treat people not like they're people, but they're furniture. They're in your way. You'll never fully know what it means to love if you live that way. How are you doing that right now? Because I I know, I know we're each doing that in ways. That's a person. The promise here is tremendous. The promise is glory. You mean, Lord Jesus Christ, if I get this right, I get glory? Well, here's the text. So I say to you as we finish the sermon and move to communion, imagine imagine achieving success beyond your wildest dreams. What would it look like in your chosen area of life? What would success beyond your wildest dreams look like? Draw it out for yourself in your mind right now quickly. Now I've reached the pinnacle, the top. I guarantee you this, even though I might applaud you and, you know, brag that you go to the church that I'm minister of, if you reach there. I guarantee you this. And this is grace, by the way. Jesus' description of victory, success, and achievement is different than the one you just drew. Thanks be to God. Now, Jesus' description of victory, success, and glory, here's the wonder of it, can be yours. When did I visit you in prison? As you've done it unto the least of these. What does glory look like? And I refer to the events of the week again. When I listened to the radio on Saturday morning, they held a vigil in Charleston on Friday night in a big community hall, like a basketball arena. And it was led mostly by people of local churches and mostly by people of the African-American church. 
And I'll tell you that I, I was absolutely taken aback by their refusal to hate. I, I still am. And what strikes the chord in me is that I know I share that faith with them. And so I think, how, I mean, how could, how could people ever do that? Except that if you trust in this one who loves in this way, you've given your life to this one. This is naturally what it means to love. You don't have to conjure it up. They sang songs of glory. It was for me listening to that on Saturday morning, a glimpse of glory. And let me tell you, you can have that glory. Maybe it's at a grocery store where I failed. Or in a church foyer or at the hospice or in a care center. And I know it sounds trite, but now you've heard the text. Be with the people you're with. So we turn to communion. Jesus Christ is our not only supreme example. Don't ever make Jesus Christ just an example. He's a savior. But our Savior and our supreme example. Look at this bread and look at this cup and ask yourself, what does it mean to love even those who are unworthy of love? The worthiness for love does not come from your merit. It comes from God. Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners, died for us. Gave his life that we could know life. And that's why we take the bread. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the cup of forgiveness. This is the covenant in the new blood. Jesus Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. That you could be in the company of the all-powerful, all-loving God by the grace of Jesus Christ. So we say you're welcome to take this communion if you know Jesus Christ or if you would like to. Receive the bread. Take it as you receive it. Receive the cup, take it as you receive it, and Bart will lead us uh, in music through the communion.